Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. My name is Rachel Carrig and I'm the Director of Communications and Market Development with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. My guest for today's podcast is Marie Moldy. She's a food industry expert and registered dietitian with Data Essential, a food trends and market insight company based in the U.S. Welcome, Marie, and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I know you just recently attended the American Dietitians Conference, which is the largest gathering of dietitians in the U.S. Maybe we could start off today by talking a little bit about what you were seeing for trends at this year's event. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, as you mentioned, Rachel, so it's the largest gathering of dietitians and nutritionists in the U.S. So there's tons of exhibitors there and kind of new marketing messages and scientific uh, research results and things all all around the world of health and nutrition. So there's a huge expo and it's attended by, again, 11,000 dietitians. And I think I would say if there was one single trend this year, it would be plant protein, which probably no surprise there, but just this continued messaging around um, plants and plant-based eating and also high protein messaging was very prevalent too. Um, You know, I saw some interesting innovation with pulses. One in particular I thought was really kind of cool is this company that is combining um, a variety of plant proteins. So I think the first three ingredients on this product were hemp seeds, pea protein isolate and lentils and they're different snack packs like uh, single serving snack packs you can get like a berry flavor or like a savory herb flavor and they're meant to sprinkle on top of your food so you could take like the berry one and sprinkle it on top of yogurt or the herb one and sprinkle it on top of you know soup or salad or something and it adds like 10 or 15 grams of plant protein to any meal so I thought that was particularly cool Um, but definitely plant protein in general was really kind of the star of the conference this year. That's interesting. You mentioned how high in protein was a focus, and I think we've been hearing high protein and seeing people interested in consuming more protein for several years now, but it really has been in the last little while that people are focusing more in on that plant protein component. This makes me wonder, when you are seeing the growing emphasis on plant protein, what is driving it for consumers? Sure. You know, at Data Central, we think it's primarily two things. So the first is this uh, major shift toward consumers wanting to adopt a flexitarian diet. So if you're not familiar with that term, flexitarian means you're a consumer who still wants to consume animal protein in your diet. So you're not eliminating meat, but you're just eating less of it. So you're eating more plant foods in your diet and meat is more of an accent or a garnish. So at Data Central, we've been tracking really how consumers are aiming and how they're aiming to change their diets for several years now. And every time we refill this study, the data gets stronger, that more and more Americans are wanting to shift to this flexitarian-style diet. So, you know, surely that's a major driver. If you're flexitarian, your primary goal is eating more plants. So that's a big part of it. And then also we see this interest today in kind of Um, incorporating more of your personal values into your food choices. So it's almost like what you're eating reflects something about who you are. Uh, And 
increasingly, especially with younger generations, so the millennials and the generation Z, so like today's teenagers into their early 30s, they're increasingly concerned about our environment. And, you know, there can, of course, be great agriculture practices for animal proteins and plant proteins just have this um, halo around them and for good reason that they're uh, good for our environment and they can be, you know, talking about lentils in particular, drought resistance and um, fixing nitrogen in the soil and those types of things. So it's like this interest in eating foods in a way that cares for our environment is also driving this plant uh, trend forward. You mentioned that Gen Z is consuming foods that align with their personal values, including plant protein. So is Gen Z the primary driver of growth in this space, or are there other consumer demographics that are helping to elevate interest in plant protein? I think it's very fair to say that Gen Z is definitely a key cohort. So they're the group who's especially interested in these kind of analog options that are available today. So it could be like the veggie burgers or maybe the branded items like the Beyond Burger or Impossible. But across the board, we see interest in this flexitarian eating pattern and incorporating more plants in our diets across all generations. So from Gen Z into the boomer audience, it's like everyone is interested in incorporating more plants and plant-based proteins. And I think to build on that, you know, the biggest challenges we see is that consumers think they're not going to taste good and they feel like they don't know how to cook them at home. So those will be like the two key uh, hurdles to overcome to even propel this kind of further with Um, all age groups. But um, across the board already today, it's like everybody is interested in, in moving toward this dietary practice. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. When we talk to people about eating pulses, we get the feedback that they maybe had a bad experience with overcooked pulses or undercooked pulses, and that sometimes can be a barrier to getting them to try them again. We find that by working with different chefs and operators in food service that know how to cook with pulses and really what flavor profiles work well, we're able to make people's introductory experience with eating pulses a positive and interesting one, hopefully leading to that repeat consumption. I would agree with that, absolutely. When we are talking about food trends and dietary shifts, where do we see that early adoption of new foods and flavors start to occur? And really, what is the process for the rest of the food industry to adapt as we see those changes? Sure, that's a great question. So our business at Data Central is centered on the premise that food service drives trends. And we've really been able to validate this with several years of data. Uh, What the process looks like is, you know, Consumers are more likely to experience a new trend as far as a new food or a new flavor or ingredient in the restaurant space first. So if you think about it, you'll go out to eat or you'll have a meal at maybe an on-site restaurant like a college and university campus, for example, and you might try a new ingredient there or a new flavor pairing. And then you're more excited about it or even aware of it and more likely to eat it again, perhaps, or try to cook it at home. So... Um, at Data Central, we use a framework called our menu adoption cycle, which is this proven framework for understanding the life cycle of a food trend. Uh, so the, that framework uh, has four stages, uh, begins in inception, which is like your fine dining restaurants or ethnic independent restaurants or kind of uh, farmer's market sort of outlets. 
Um, once ingredients are seen there, they start to move into more of your trendy restaurant uh, space, so like gastropubs or fast casual restaurants. And then they continue to progress into more of the uh, mainstream chain restaurants, and eventually they're in this stage called ubiquity, where they're found everywhere. Uh, so one important thing, though, is that if something is in those later stages of the trend curve, it doesn't mean it's not trendy anymore, that it's lost its potential. It's actually a good thing because that means more people know about it. And to your point, Rachel, oftentimes when people know about something and they've tried it, they're more likely to like it. So uh, to give a bit of context to this, if we look at like our menu adoption cycle for pulses and legumes as a category, lentils are in the proliferation stage, which is that third out of the four stages. And that's really a great place to be because it means that lentils are found today in a wide variety of like food outlets. So from restaurants to college campuses to uh, retail operators, and that means a lot of consumers are seeing them, they're likely to have tried them, and they're likely to want to continue consuming them and do things like experiment with, experiment with them or cook with them at home as well. You've talked a little bit about where lentils and pulses more broadly are within that menu adoption cycle. What are some of the opportunities that you see for pulses to continue to play in this space? Sure. So, you know, the great thing about pulses is that they're such a wonderful blank canvas. Uh, So in food service, you know, they're found, they really runs the gamut. So from things like appetizer dishes to soups and salads, and then I would call out bowls in particular as a major area for growth. And uh, Rentals.org is doing such a good job with the the Power Bowls platform here and continuing to promote this. So it's, um, you know, this idea of grains and vegetables and oftentimes a globally influenced flavor to have that kind of interesting entree meal. So I would, I would say bowls are where we're seeing the most momentum with uh, pulses and food service. And then in retail, I think that that snack category is really key. Uh, so thinking back to like the, the puffed snacks, I saw at this dietitian conference or those single serving packets of lentils and seeds to add to a, to a meal. Uh, that that snack day part is really key. Excellent. You mentioned Lentils.org there, and maybe for those who are unfamiliar, Lentils.org is a promotional arm of Saskatchewan Pulse Growers that we use to promote lentils to different end-use audiences, especially in the food service area. You can visit our website, Lentils.org, to check out more of that work. As we look at the plant protein market, there are a lot of options out there for consumers. Are pulses on the radar for these consumers that are interested in and looking to include more plant protein in their diets? There is definitely interest in pulses in regard to plant protein, and it's it's prevalent already, and it's growing. Uh, so lentils in particular today, uh, 34% of consumers across the board say they love or like them. So that's really strong, especially looking across all different types of raw ingredients. That's uh, a really great uh, percentage there. And we refield that data every quarter, and we see that love and, and like for lentils and lentils, I guess, in this case, grow continuously, which is also really awesome to see. Uh, We do see some funny skews in the pulse category. One example I think is interesting is garbanzo beans skew toward a boomer audience as far as affinity for garbanzos and chickpeas skew toward a millennial audience. 
So the same product called by a different name kind of appeals to two different groups of consumers. Uh, so, you know, we're thinking about naming sometimes when you're thinking about an audience that you're attracting with these various products and menu items. But uh, all of that to say lentils and, and pulses of the category are definitely something that consumers today are interested in and are looking for to solve this desire for plant protein and increasing plant-based foods in our diet. You mentioned that you're seeing interest and growth in the use of pulses within different food service sectors. What are some of the examples of innovation that you're seeing with pulses amongst these operators? Yes. So excitingly, we have seen a ton more innovation in recent years. I think I'd like to, you know, call out the great work that's being done by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers and other organizations in this space because it's really driving innovation and interest and consumption of pulses in food service. Uh, in particular. So, you know, it's funny, we just did an analysis of the top, the fastest growing restaurant chains in the U.S. by unit count and by sales growth. And the runaway star uh, of growth this past year is this sector that we call salad and healthful within limited service restaurants. So these are the operators that are offering, you know, your salads and your green bowls. Uh, they had uh, 10.6% growth in unit count and 11.3% growth in sales this past year. And this is important because this is the sector that also is menuing uh, pulses the most. So you think about operators like uh, Pret-a-Manger is one example. They have over 100 units uh, here in the U.S. Uh, they're menuing things like lentil power bowls with feta cheese or with salmon. Uh, or operators like Sweet Green, which is one of the fastest growing salad chains. They're menuing uh, lots of different builds for salads with lentils on their menu. Uh, chickpeas are used in a variety of ways in these operators. So I think you know, this this category of salad and healthful is continuing to grow. It's by far the fastest growing restaurant segment in the U.S. And these operators are who is really uh, leading the way with innovation in regard to uh, pulses in particular. You gave us some examples of limited service restaurants, but maybe more generally, what does that category mean? What is a limited service restaurant? Sure. Limited service restaurant includes quick service restaurants and fast casual restaurants. And the best way to think about it is these are your uh, operators where you go in and you place your order yourself at the counter. So there's no wait staff. There's typically a bit lower of a price point because of that. Uh, and we can compare it to full service restaurants, which is the other category where uh, in those you're going in, you're sitting down, you have a, a server, you can oftentimes order an alcoholic beverage at those operators. Um, so LSR is just that more kind of like you go in, you order off a menu board, uh, and you kind of handle the filtering and the, the delivery process yourself. We have talked a lot about plant protein and that space and the opportunity there for pulses. But when you look at plant protein, do you think that this is a food trend that will eventually burn itself out? Or is this a bigger, longer-term dietary shift that we're seeing in consumers? We think that this is definitely here to stay. And we think that's in large part because it's not driven by any one thing. There's so many components to it. Uh, so it could be the health story or it could be the environmental story uh, or it could be just, you know, flavor and, and people 
today are having so many more options available to us in regard to things like the blended burger products that are made with uh, plant protein and animal protein, for example. So uh, we believe it's here to stay. We don't think it's just a trend. We think we'll continue to see lots of cool innovation and growth within this plant protein category. That's great. We know that long-term, the majority of consumers are not looking to move away from consuming animal protein entirely, but are leaning more towards that flexitarian approach you mentioned earlier. How do you see plant protein and animal protein complementing each other within that style of a diet? Sure. So we think really, you know, all the buzz and all the chatter is around plants and plant protein, but truly we think the biggest opportunity for success is plant protein in conjunction with and not at the exclusion of animal protein. Uh, So, you know, consumers today are wanting to shift towards flexitarian. And I think part of that is that diet is very approachable. We don't have to eliminate anything to do that. And we still want to eat meat. So, you know, there's a lot of science that hints that we, we were all biologically programmed to crave meat. People really love meat. We can look in a tool we have called Flavor uh, that tracks consumer sentiment for various ingredients. And, you know, something like 58% of people love steak today and 5% of people love tofu as one example there. So we really think that uh the, the two items don't have to be mutually exclusive and actually the most potential lies in coupling plant protein with animal-based protein. And also if you think of something like, you know, sauteing uh, some bacon with some lentils, that might be a great way to convert uh, someone who's more of a meat eater into including more plant protein in their diet uh, on a daily basis. So um, the biggest opportunity lies in these two items being complementary. So that being said, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, Maybe you have a meatless Monday. Uh, Maybe you have just less meat uh, where you might have had, say, six ounces before in a meal. Maybe you're having more like two to three. Or maybe if you're approaching this flexitarian eating pattern, a, a blended burger might be a good choice for you. So that's taking something like lentils or chickpeas or beans and blending them with animal protein. So you're having a burger that's not 100% meat, maybe 70% meat, and that 30% is substituted or replaced with a plant-based item. Maybe as we wrap up, Marie, I'll ask you just one last question. Where do you see the plant protein trend evolving to next? We have the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger and all the other similar products that are coming to market, but where do you think that next level of innovation will be in this space? Yeah, I think actually we're going to see more uh, plant proteins, like ingredients from plants, used and extracted in various ways, so like fermentation or other methods, taking these ingredients and using them to replicate the texture of meat. So we're seeing that already, like you mentioned, Rachel, with the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, but there's a lot more innovation in the space. There's a lot of startup money being uh, pounded into this with things like dairy, non-dairy milks or various, you know, chicken nugget substitutes and things like that. So I think that's uh, going to continue in our future. And I also think that the interest and the appeal that these analog products are generating are 
getting people to think like, you know, it probably is a good idea to eat more plants and it already has has done this, but it's having ripple effects and getting us to think that, you know, eating plants in a holistic way, eating more plants is a good idea. So across the board, there's interest in all the different types, nuts, seeds, pulses, fruits, vegetables, etc. So the conversation is really happening today that eating more plants is a good idea. So I think across the board, we're going to be seeing more innovation And definitely that includes using these plant products to mimic and replicate the texture and flavor of meat in some instances where it's appropriate. I know that I've seen a product from Tyson Foods that is a dinosaur-shaped chicken nugget that is made of a blend of chicken and chickpeas. And to me, that seems like an easy win for parents when it comes to challenging times around the dinner table. Yeah, I mean, who can resist a dinosaur? Thank you again for joining us today, Marie. We appreciate your time and insights on where the interest in plant protein is really headed in the future. Absolutely. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. If you're wanting to hear more about the opportunities for plant protein and what that could mean for Saskatchewan farmers, I encourage you to join us at Crops Fair in Saskatoon this January. Registration for this event is now open at cropsphere.com.